um, some of the the family trauma of the past comes back and affects every member of this extended family um, in in different ways. So that's a quick summary of the book without giving anything um, <laughs> true to true dramatic <laughs> away. Um, so I, I got the idea for this book when I was in graduate school. It was the year 2004, which was a long time ago. Um, but I, I usually come up with ideas for short stories, for essays, for books um, based on a single image. That's just kind of my writing process. And the image that came to me in 2004 was a man standing at his kitchen window washing dishes and looking out and seeing his elderly mother walking toward the house naked. Um, and that is an awfully strange image to kind of come out of nowhere. Um, but I suspect, you know, at the time, my parents um, were starting to talk about their own retirement for the first time. So my best guess is that I was sort of thinking about, like, this new life of theirs and how, as they got older, um, they would come to rely on me and my, my sister more than they have in the past. So I think that's kind of the seed of it. But um, 2004, I had absolutely no idea what to do with that scene. So I just kind of put it away in a drawer and didn't think about it again for about three years. In 2007, there was a, a real-life home invasion that took place about 90 minutes south of where I used to live in Massachusetts. And that particular crime um, was, you know, it, it affected a family of four and I started to, to pull together this image and this idea of violence and what happened if a family um, was the victim of violence in the present, but then had also a history of violence in their past. Mm. So, you know, that was three years after the initial idea. And then um, I didn't start actually writing the book or even really thinking about it as a book until the year 2010. So it had a long incubation period, I would say. This is kind of a tangential question, but so did you start it as a novel or did you start it as a short story? I definitely um, thought in 2004 that it was the beginning of a short story because in grad school, that was pretty much all I was writing. Um, you know, the workshop table, I think, is most conducive to short fiction because they just tend to be the most digestible form, you know, 15 pages instead of 300. And at the right. time, my MFA program didn't have a novel workshop. So I was thinking about everything that I was generating back then as a short story. And it wasn't until uh, the years passed and I started thinking about more facets, as you might say, of what could happen within this family that it became really, really clear to me. It's like, oh, <laughs> silly, this is, this is a novel. And that kind of tagged to a lot of the feedback that I got in my workshops as a grad student. Um, where I would constantly be writing longer and longer short stories um, that were starting to kind of breach novella length. Um, and everyone would say, well, this feels like a novel, <laughs> which is such annoying feedback. But it was actually quite true. <laughs> so you've mentioned that in this story that violence happens against the family. And some people have described it as a literary thriller so was that something that you had in mind as you wrote it or did it just kind of happen as you like fleshed out Kyung and his family? And then also like, do you think that the literary thriller label influences how people view your novel now that it's out in the world? You know, I definitely didn't think about um, 
intentionally writing a literary thriller. It it happened as I was drafting and revising. Um, I don't read read in that particular subgenre, so I wasn't even really familiar with what that meant until people who are more familiar with the publishing industry and all its vernacular started talking about my book in that way. So that was a complete surprise to me um, and a pleasant one because, you know, it, I think it helps different types of readers find my book. Um, people who might not immediately gravitate towards something that's literary fiction, but who really enjoy thrillers. You know, personally, as a first-time writer, I care less about the categories through which people find my book. I'm happy when they do, and I'm happy if they enjoy it for whatever reason. Given this particular economy, given the state of publishing in general, I'm just thrilled when people are buying books or libraries are buying books and people are out there reading what they enjoy and what gives them comfort and what, what fills their time in a way that they find meaningful. So I'm I'm entirely okay with with the literary thriller category. I just never really conceived of it until other people started using it. I just thought it was beautiful, and I'm, you know, I'll spare you my my you know discussion of genre. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm very familiar with it. <laughs> but I I just I just adored your book, and I really wanted more people just to get out there and, and read it. And sometimes people, basically, once I read it, I was like, everyone read this book. <laughs> Pretty much what Autumn experienced was everyone yes. else in my vicinity <laughs> experience. Yeah. So I, I just thought it was great. And I hadn't, I guess I hadn't really thought of uh, the fact that it being labeled as, you know, literary thriller might make it more accessible. But I just thought it was great, period. One of my favorite parts about the book is how Kyung is an unreliable narrator. Um, even until the very end, um, I it, I just had, it just didn't click. It just didn't click. And then at the very last sentence, I finished it, I closed the cover, and I was walking around my house, like, you know, in the book coma, and I realized what was going on. Um, and you, listener, will have to read it to discover that. <laughs> um, <laughs> But did you find it difficult uh, to balance Kyung's characterization as, you know, he has both positive and negative qualities? Yeah, you know, I think um, early drafts of of the manuscript, Kyung definitely tipped more toward negative. Because I think from the start, I really wanted to write an unlikable character but by the end of the book, I wanted readers to be able to empathize with him and how he came to this particular state in life. I think all of us, well, hopefully this isn't the case, but I suspect most of us know somebody in in our expanded you know, circles who's kind of a, a difficult or, or miserable human being and, you know, wondering like, how in the world did you get like that? Um, sometimes we're close enough to kind of know the answer. Um, but sometimes we're just at enough of a distance to kind of look with real mystification at a person who just seems kind of terrible, um, and infuriating and, um, feeling frustrated with that individual. So I was trying from the beginning to create someone who invoked that response in people, but really wanting to get into sort of the fibers of this person so that people could understand why there wasn't much choice for him to turn out any other way. I think those early drafts, I really definitely tip more toward the negative. But 
as I kept revising and revising, you know, it was, it was necessary to bring a bit more balance to him, um, to sort of put him in that gray area in the middle where depending on what the stimulus is that he's responding to, he can kind of go either way. I mean, Chang is someone who has genuine love for his son. Um, and that's one of the places that I really chose, um, to focus on most heavily in the revisions because, you know, he cares about what happens to his child. He cares that he's not really living up to what he feels is a, sort of the model of responsibility for a good father. And, you know, he worries sort of daily that he's screwing this up and he doesn't want to. And, and yet that same instinct um, to look after Ethan, his son, at, at times it can result in really sort of furious, angry responses um, over protectiveness, sort of petulant um, behavior. He can be a lot of different things at any given moment, depending on what's happening to him. And also part of that is due to the fact that he really doesn't have any good models of behavior um, for fatherhood, for being a husband, for being a good human being. So yeah, it was a hard balance to strike and a lot of it got worked out during the revision. Um, I always tell people, I don't think anyone's ever going to want to have a beer with Kyung, but I hope <laughs> at the end of the book, you know, that they will at least understand why he is what he is. I definitely felt that. I didn't read it in one sitting the way Kendra did. And so mm -hmm. I found myself like every couple chapters going, oh, poor Kyung. And then good grief. What's this guy's problem? Like for real. <laughs> and then like going back and forth and back and forth. So I, I definitely did get a sense of like he is like this kind of gray area of him being good and like wanting to do good, but like not ever quite making it. Yeah. And, and trying to and wanting to and also just being kind of hyper aware of the fact sometimes that he's. He's just messing it all up. And, you know, imagine like living every, every day of your life aware that something huge, like you're just messing it up like that, that will wear a person down, I think, in the worst ways very, very quickly. So that's actually a good lead into the next question we had, which was like, so the, the book does talk about cycles, different cycles of abuse, both, you know, physical abuse and then emotional abuse. And like, how did you get into the head of the characters as they experienced this abuse and like, you know, inflicted violence against each other. Was it difficult or like, how did you approach that? I did a lot of research before I started writing. Um, and then I was doing a lot of research, um, at the same time that I was doing like these brief, like character sketches. Um, and when I say brief character sketches, it's just putting a character in various scenes, but I did actually hundreds of pages of those sketches just trying to get to know them a little bit and and see how they might behave in different scenarios. I am a morning writer, so I do my writing and my research usually at about 4.45, 5 o'clock in the morning. So there were many, many months when I would wake up and like one of the first things that I would do would be to read um, an essay or a first-person narrative of someone who was a survivor of domestic violence or child abuse. And that is a difficult way to start a morning. But for me, you know, for me, it was, it's all a fiction. Um, for these, these people who are writing these narratives, they were nowhere near as fortunate. So, you know, I took everything that I read, I took everything that I researched and tried to composite characters who didn't really feel like characters who actually felt like human beings. And part of that was 
doing those those character sketches, as I mentioned, and seeing how Kyung might behave at something as innocuous as a job interview or what he does the first thing in the morning versus how he might respond um, when he when he's being triggered when when he feels unsafe, when the environment or the people that he's around are starting to feel unstable. It was, I think, a balancing act of making sure that I was putting him in situations where he could try to be, quote unquote, sort of normal, you know, be a husband, be a father, be in his home, be peaceful versus when he kind of felt that he was at risk or something was a threat. And that wasn't easy. Um, It's especially not easy to start, you know, every day for many, many days like that. But again, I always sort of remembered the fact that this is a fiction for me. It's a fiction for Kyung. um, And I really wanted to to do justice and honor people who have been brave enough to write about their own real-life experiences with, with violence in their lives. You know, when we discuss the book, we always say, you know, there are trigger warnings um, in this book, but I felt you did such a great job of humanizing both, I'm trying not to give spoilers, this is, this is really difficult, isn't it? <laughs> it's so hard. <laughs> but, but humanizing all of the characters, even the ones who are being abusive and those who are being abused. And um, I, some of the times, like, I never saw it coming. Uh, sometimes you're like, oh, okay, that makes sense. And I just was blown away that you could just get into that much of a character's head and not just your protagonist, but, you know, all of the characters basically and uh, like with the home invasion and you know family stuff uh, there you know there's just there's just so much going on and just I can't imagine putting a character through I guess those steps and through those situations and just bringing all of that out that was very vague but you know no spoilers so <laughs> I feel successful <laughs> I know Way to go, Kendra. Thank you. Thank you. Because, <laughs> um, yeah, it, the struggle is real. <laughs> you know, it's really strange. I actually, I'm writing something new um, now, and I, you know, even though I wouldn't even really want to get a beer with Kyung, I still kind of miss him. He was such a big part <laughs> of my life. And, um, like, it, it sounds weird, but, like, getting to know him over that period of time, um, getting to know him almost as well as I know, like flesh and blood human beings in my own life. Like that was such an experience. And it's strange, like not waking up every morning thinking about him or his parents or his wife. It's kind of odd. Like I I strangely miss him, even though, even though when I finished the book, I knew that it was done uh, and I wasn't going to go back to it anymore. So yeah, I, I guess it's, you know, it's, nice feeling that a character has kind of breached that line between something that's like two-dimensional and three-dimensional. If that doesn't make me sound entirely insane. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's it's like you have a friend, you know, you've got, you had coffee with them every morning and. Yeah. I mean, I I know him better than I know a lot of people. Yeah. So. How long did it take you to write? It took me about three and a half years, about one full year to draft uh, a full working manuscript and about two and a half years of revision, which is, you know, if I, if I look at that ratio um, and apply it to a short story, that's about the time that it usually takes me. About a third of the time is drafting and, and the majority of the time is just revising. Yeah. So that is a long time to get to know somebody. Yes, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> so another question that I had 
was that Kyung and his family encounter both subtle and blatant racism in their work lives and everyday lives. And it seems to make Kyung feel, you know, that sense of otherness. Um, Kyung is also in a biracial marriage for our listeners who haven't read the book. And he says to his wife at some point, that's an American idea. Koreans are different. And he's always telling his wife about, you know, do this with my parents. You know, this is the culture and the way it is. There's so many layers to this novel. So how did you approach, you know, the many complexities of race in the book? And did you find any part of Kyung's experience particularly challenging to write? Sure. Um, that's, that's a fantastic question. You know, I, I wanted to to run through a range of different types of experiences and interactions that a character like Kyung might have. Everything from like the microaggression of the realtor sort of walking into his house and saying, oh, you're Chinese, and he's not, um, to things that are a bit more blatant. And in his father's case, you know, coming to the United States at a different time um, in the 70s and experiencing what it was like to be the only non-white person in this now diverse college town where they all live. You know, trying to, to show a range of different interactions and experiences was important to me. And also like the differences that happen between generations, between the father and the mother who were first generation immigrants who came and experienced that sense of otherness of being, you know, looked at at parties and, you know, may not speaking the language very well. And then, you know, that transference of the privileges and some of the hardships to Kyung, who's a 1.5 generation. I mean, he came when he was very young, like I did. He knows the language. He's assimilated more or less into as an American, but then still feeling that he has one foot in this world and one foot in the other, having been raised by parents who are very, very traditional still, you know, where the wife. Her job is to make the home and to cook the meals and to take care of the household. And Kyung is in a very different position. So he's struggling with the sense of otherness that comes from being kind of between places and between worlds. He's also struggling, I think, with the fact that he looks a certain way from the outside. He, in terms of his socioeconomic status, but he feels very differently in the day-to-day in terms of what's hidden underneath the surface. And because he's an immigrant, because he came to this country um, with his family and there's an expectation that he should do as well, if not better than them. The fact that he's not probably going to get tenure at his university, um, the fact that he struggles in comparison to his colleagues who are kind to him, but also sort of seem to patronize him at times. All of it is just a struggle um, that he internalizes in ways where he's constantly like overthinking everything. So a look, a passing glance in a diner, you know, he imbues it with more weight than it might actually have because he feels genuinely put upon pretty much every single day. Yeah, it's really tough to read his experience, especially, I guess, at his university and then with his parents. And then I really thought it was interesting, his interactions with his wife and how his wife just, she, you know, did as he requested for the most part, but she was like, I just, I just don't get it. You know, like, why aren't they trying, why aren't they meeting me in the middle? It seemed like she was thinking and. Yeah. I, and I think that's a really reasonable thing for someone like Jillian to think having not grown up in a culture where, you know, where you're supposed to take care of, there's a line in the book, like it's parents first, you know, children second mm-hmm. and wife last. 
that's the way Kyung was raised. That's what he saw growing up in his home. It's a Korean idea, but not an exclusively Korean idea. There are many cultures that embrace those same ideas even still. Yeah, for, for Jillian, she's kind of, she's in this marriage, but she's just like one foot out. She plays her part when she needs to, sort of goes with Ken's directions when when he asks her to. But it helps them both, I think, significantly that in the beginning of the book, they're essentially estranged from Kyung's parents and don't have to do this play acting very often, which I think is part of the reason why uh, she was initially so amenable to it at first. So I think that's all of our book questions. So you mentioned that you were in an MFA program, and then, of course, um, so I'm sure you've done a lot of reading. And then, um, you know, we, of course, reading women, we're all about, you know, female voices and great female authors. Uh, who are the who are the women who've, like, inspired your writing who or who you really look up to as role models for your writing or are some of just your favorite authors? Can they be dead? Of course course. they can be dead. (laughs) (laughs) They're not all dead, but some of them are dead. Um, I was uh, an early reader and um, started reading Jane Austen and uh, the Bronte sisters um, earlier than some of my peers and have gone back to those novels again and again, um, realizing as I got older, as I was writing more myself, that these Victorian and Regency era novels, they were so, um, they're so interesting to what I do now because they, they really did pry apart um, social norms and values, gender and power and the movements that people could make in society. And it's only in my 30s Um, And later that I've been really able to think about like, oh, these things are so interesting to me and they have been my entire life. And I I think that part of that was sort of rooted in um, reading these these English novels when I was really, really young. So those are some of the dead ones. (laughs) (laughs) And they're some of our favorites. So you're in good company. (laughs) Um, And I think more contemporary, um, you know, Maxine Hong Kingston and Amy Tan, I grew up in North Dakota. I'm not sure if you know that. And I was fed, you know, a steady canon. And that was my sort of the literary inheritance that I was given um, in public schools. It wasn't until I got to college and I discovered um, The Woman Warrior and The Joy Luck Club um, and some of their later works that that it ever occurred to me that Asian Americans, much less Asian American women, had stories that other people cared about um, and wanted to read. Those two um, really stand out for me because they were kind of the ones who just sort of turned the light on. Let's see. Francine Prose and Louise Erdrich. Yes. yes. God, Tony, Tony Morrison. Oh, my yes, God. Yes, she was um, a goddess. Yeah, and, and Jamaica Kincaid. I mean, these these women who I have just, read over time and the, the instant that they publish a new book and they're so prolific. These are the ones I just really hold extremely close to my heart because they're getting up in years. They're just constantly innovating on the page. They're not content to do the same thing, to write the same stories. I mean, thematically, I think they're still in the same wheelhouse, but they're just writing brilliant new stories that make us think about things in, in, in slightly different ways. And then still that ability to create characters who, who we just attach to. I'm always looking for that in books. And I, I think these particular women do it so incredibly well. We have to agree with you. Those are some of, I mean, you've named so many good ones in there. Oh, 
it's so hard to pick a favorite, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And I hope I wasn't supposed to pick one. No, you weren't. <laughs> well, I was just going to say that's like when we settled on our logo and picked Flannery O'Connor and Virginia Woolf, we almost felt like we cheated so many of our other favorite authors. We were like, no, these aren't our only favorites. We have more favorites. Yeah, exactly. And even as I'm just sitting here, like reflecting, I'm like, oh, Jim Lahiri and Zadie Smith and, 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 and. Yes, so, um, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. One of the most difficult, like, party questions if you get a bunch of writers together is the literary Mount Rushmore. Like, who are the four writers who you would put on Mount Rushmore oh, and sort of immortalize them in time? Um, and I would be so hard pressed um, to pick only four. I even feel that way now that a lot of my friends and family members know I have a podcast. They'll text me and they'll mm-hmm. be like, what books do you recommend? And I'm like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I yeah, exactly. have to think about that and then I'll give you 20 and then you can pick. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Some of our recent favorites have been actually authors that I discovered on your Twitter um, uh, Christine Hyung Oakley and Min Jin Lee, we both, uh, as we <gasps> saw on your, your oh. yes, we talked to them <laughs> and we fell in love. So thank you. Truly, madly, deeply. Awesome? Yes. Oh, yeah. yes. I mean, Min Jin Lee's uh, first book, Free Food for Millionaires, I was just like, oh my God. <laughs> That's, I kind of had the same experience that you did sort of standing like after I finished the book and kind of like wandering around in the book coma and wanting my husband to come home so I could tell him about it immediately. Like exactly. that book was yes. yeah, revelatory. Um, and her new book is just so good uh, and so intricately researched. And Christine's book, I haven't had a chance to read yet, but it's literally sitting on my end table. And she's such a lovely person. I finally just got a chance to meet her at AWP and she has just such an incredible story to tell. So yeah, I'm, I'm glad you got a chance to, to chat with them. So speaking of new books, uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on next or are you afraid to jinx it? Um, I probably will jinx it, but I'll just, I'll tell you anyway, um, <laughs> which is, I'm writing about siblings, um, who are, um, traveling to South Dakota together for a particular reason. And they're siblings who are sort of geographically and emotionally kind of cut off from each other in their adulthood. And as you can imagine, travel (laughs) um, brings out the best and the worst in people. Um, That's kind of where this next manuscript is headed. As someone who has spent many hours in a van with multiple siblings, (laughs) I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I'm just going to leave it at that. (laughs) The uh, summer memories in, um, in South Dakota with my dad, like, I think he was smoking like Paul malls at the time, you know, know, bad station wagon summer, no air conditioning because he wouldn't turn on the air conditioner uh, for gas mileage. So I have lots of like, you know, I'm, (laughs) I'm bringing to the, to the forefront, lots of memories that I think I've sort of you know, put off to the side, knowing that one day I'd probably have to write about them. Well, I will eagerly be anticipating that one. Yes, oh, for sure. So, and that's our show. We'd like to thank Jung Yoon for talking to us about her book Shelter um, by Picador, which is also now out in paperback. And you can um, find her on her website or on Twitter, and we'll have links to all of her social media things 
um, in our show notes. And as we mentioned before, she always has excellent, excellent book recommendations. So you'll definitely want to follow along. And if you would like a Reading Women Award seal for your copy of Shelter, you can send us an email at hello at readingwomenpodcast.com. And as for us, you can find me, Autumn Privet, on Twitter at Autumn Privet. I'm also on Instagram. And then you can find Kendra on Twitter, Instagram at Katie Winchester. And of course, please rate us and review us in iTunes or in Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. It definitely helps other people find great author interviews like this and share the reading women love everywhere. So thank you all so much for listening and we'll talk to you next time. See you later guys. Bye.